to take your Bibles at this time and turn to Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. Judges is near the beginning of the Old Testament, Judges chapter 4. Uh, back home in California, I am going through a series on favorite Bible stories, which have been suggested to me mostly by children in our congregation. And uh, it's been very enjoyable for me to do that. And uh, by the way, when I say story, I don't mean fiction. We, we sometimes hear the word story and think of something that wasn't really true. Um, all of these things really happened in history. And uh, this morning we come to a very interesting one in Judges chapter 4. Uh, you probably have read this before, and especially the end of the passage is, is quite uh, graphic and interesting, uh, but we're going we're gonna to see how this beautifully points us to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. So Judges chapter 4, I'm going to read the entire chapter. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'anaim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, 
took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. Well, that's an interesting passage, right? Uh, maybe you've heard the phrase before, he just doesn't learn. He just doesn't learn. Maybe you've said that about someone. Maybe you said that about your dog. Uh, maybe you've had someone say that about you. He just doesn't learn. And, and usually it's in reference to someone who just doesn't learn from their mistakes. They, they just keep making the same mistake over and over and over. There's a sense in which that could be said about all of us as Christians. Paul famously says in Romans chapter 7, the good things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, those are the things I keep doing. That was true of Paul, and that's, that's certainly true of us, that as Christians, even as Christians, we, we continue to seem to fall into the same patterns of sin and struggles. I bring this up because this is one of the things that stands out in the book of Judges. If you've ever read the book of Judges before, one of the things that you'll notice is that God's people just keep doing the same things. They keep falling into the same pattern of behavior. This morning, we have a story before us that is um, very memorable, but it's also, more importantly, very instructive. It's instructive because it reminds us that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who has won the battle for us. And again, if you were here this morning and you were thinking that, you know, somehow I have to try harder, somehow I have to be better, and that God will then accept me, the Scripture is very clear all throughout the Bible and in this passage that it is God who wins the battle for His people. It's a reminder that our right standing with God is not dependent upon us. Our right standing with God is dependent upon resting in the finished and perfect work of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at this passage this morning, and there are really three parts to this passage. The first part is that Israel sins against God. Chapter 3, which we didn't read, focuses on the story of Ehud. Um, Ehud was a, a left-handed assassin who killed King Eglon and led Israel to a great victory over the Moabites. In fact, if you have your Bible open and you look back at the end of chapter 3, it says that the, the land after Eglon or after Ehud had rest for 80 years, 80 years of peace from their enemies. But, but now, as chapter 4 begins, we're told that Ehud is dead. And, and once again, like we find in ourselves, Israel falls into sin. Israel falls into idolatry. Once again, they follow after the Baals and the Asherahs. They turn away from Yahweh and they follow these false gods. And they find out once again, as we have found out in our own lives, that sin has consequences. Notice verse 2. It says, The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Jabin was the king of Canaan. He, he ruled from a place called Hazor. Now, what do we know about Hazor? Um, Hazor was located about 
10 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Um, it was a very large, very important city in the ancient world. It was about 200 acres in size. Um, some scholars even say that it was the largest city of its day. For comparison's sake, think of the city of Jericho. Jericho was very small. We, we tend to think of Jericho as a really big city because we think of the walls of Jericho falling down. Jericho was only about 10 acres in size and only had about a population of 1,500 people. Uh, Hazor was 20 times bigger and had a population of 40,000 people. Again, quite possibly the biggest city of its day. Now, there's a connection here with Hazor and the book of Joshua. Um, Back in Joshua chapter 11, Joshua and the Israeli army go into Hazor, and they capture the city, they, they kill the king of Hazor, and they burn the city to the ground. Total destruction, just as God had commanded them to do. Well, here we are now in Judges chapter 4, about 100 years after Joshua wiped out Hazor, and Hazor is back on the scene. As you can imagine, Hazor has a score to settle. Israel wiped us out 100 years, 100 years ago. We're going to go after them now. Hazor is now a major force in the region. They have risen from the dust of the ashes. Verse uh, 3 tells us they have 900 iron chariots. The general over all of this is a man named Sisera, the guy who's going to have the, the splitting headache pretty soon. But this is a big army. You might remember that when um, Pharaoh let Israel go in the book of Exodus, you, you remember at the end of the ten plagues, Pharaoh finally throws his hands up and he says, fine, you guys go. Moses, take the people out of here and go. And, and Pharaoh has a change of heart. And you might remember that when Pharaoh and his army chase after Israel to the Red Sea, Pharaoh has 600 choice chariots and a few other chariots. Well, here we're told that Hazor has 900 chariots. This is a massive, powerful army controlling Israel. Chariots were, were fierce war machines in that day. But here's the thing that the text doesn't tell us. Israel should have known the promise of God. Israel should have believed the promise of God. God had said to his people back in, in Joshua chapter 17, you shall drive out the Canaanites even though they have chariots of iron. I will fight for you and you will be strong. Israel should have remembered God's promise when God said to them, don't fear the Canaanites. Don't fear their iron chariots. I will fight for you. I will win the victory for you. But they didn't listen. They didn't believe God's promise. They didn't live their lives in light of God's promise. And they lived in fear. You know, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives us a promise. You remember that promise? Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus made that very, very clear. And, and we look at our world today, we, we look at the godless culture in which we live. Maybe California is a little more godless than North Carolina. But maybe we're afraid. Maybe we look at the culture and we, we look at what's happening in our world. We, we look at the, the whole gender thing and the same-sex marriage thing and all that's going on. And we think to ourselves, you know, what's the point? What hope is there? The world is so wicked and so powerful and so influential. What hope does the church have? 
And we end up kind of hiding in the corner, so to speak, praying for the return of Jesus. Now, we should pray for the return of Jesus, earnestly. But at the same time, we should also live our lives in light of the promise that Jesus made to us. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nothing's going to prevail against my church. Maybe you think about the, the ministry here at Grace, and, and you think to yourself, you know, what hope is there for our church? We're just this small group of people trying to make a difference in this godless world, and it, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of hope. Brothers and sisters, we have Christ's promise that no one and nothing can thwart his purposes in this world. And so we can live our lives and we can carry out the ministry that Christ has given to us with faith, confidence, not in ourselves, but in his promise. I will do this, Jesus says. I will build my church. We can parent our children in faith. We can share the gospel in faith. We can minister to one another in faith, knowing that nothing is going to defeat the purposes of Jesus in this world. Israel didn't listen. Israel didn't believe. And now they are, they are subjugated to and oppressed by a very large, very powerful people. Verse 3 even tells us that for 20 years, they're treated very cruelly by Jabin. Very cruelly is an understatement. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but if you were to look ahead in chapter 5, which is the Song of Deborah, it, it describes in a very poetic way what the Canaanites were known for. Basically, the goal of the Canaanites, when they came over and they oppressed another people, the goal of the Canaanites was to kill all the men and sexually abuse all the women. That's what was going on here. Israel is being oppressed by a very, very wicked people. And now we see the second thing here in this passage, that Israel cries out to God. Just like in the last chapter, when they were oppressed by Eglon, Israel once again cries out to God to deliver them. And the next thing you know, we're introduced to this woman named Deborah. Now, what do we know about Deborah? First of all, we're told that, that she's a prophetess. In other words, she is someone who speaks for God. She is God's mouthpiece, God's spokesperson. Second, we're told that she was judging Israel at that time. What that means is that when people had a dispute, they, they would come to Deborah and she would help to, to arbitrate or to settle their disputes. And then third, we're told that she did this while sitting under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel, which was in southern Ephraim. Now, even though our passage doesn't explicitly say this, the implication is that the Levitical priests weren't doing their jobs. This is, a, this is indictment against the Levitical priests. You see, one of the duties of the priests of that day was that they were called to speak God's truth to God's people. They, they were called to speak the word of God. In that sense, you could picture them as the, as the elders and the pastors of that day. The priests of that day had the calling to teach truth to God's people but they weren't doing that. They were unfaithful. And so God raises up Deborah. He calls her and he equips her to be his spokesperson. Now, I don't think that this was God's ideal. God had called the Levites, specifically Levite men, to speak for him, but they didn't do it. They failed in their calling. They abdicated their calling. 
And there is a principle here. When you read about Deborah, the principle is this. When there is a void in leadership, that void has to be filled. When men won't step up and and do what the Lord calls them to do, someone else will step into that void. And so God uses Deborah. And she's a prophetess. She's God's spokesperson. And at this point in the story, she gets a hold of Barak. Barak is um, Israel's military general. And, and she basically says, this is how it's going to go down, Barak. Um, God says that he wants you to, to get 10,000 of your soldiers and go to Mount Tabor. And, and Deborah says, I'll make sure that, that I get Sisera to the Kishon River and, and God is going to give you the victory. That was God's word to Barak through Deborah the prophetess. Notice how Barak responds. Look at verse 8. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Interesting. He says, if you go, I'll go. But but Deborah, if if you're not going to go, I'm not going. Now, a lot of people will pile on Barak at this point. And a lot of people will say, what a coward. What What a weak military general. What a spineless man. He's only going to go if if Deborah will go with him. But I don't think we should judge Barak too quickly on this. And and the reason I say this is because of this. When when Barak is talking to Deborah, he's not speaking to her as he would to just any average Jewish woman of his day. It's it's not like he's saying, Deborah, I'll go, but, but I need you to go with me as if he doesn't have enough courage to do it himself. Again, who was Deborah? Deborah was a prophetess. Deborah was a spokesperson for God. And on behalf of God, she's saying to Barak, the Lord wants you to gather your troops, go to Mount Tabor, and you're going to win the victory. You're going to defeat Sisera and his army. And so I think that when, when Barak says, you need to go with me, it's not that he's a coward. It's not that he's spineless. It's it's not that he's saying, I can't go unless you go with me, Deborah. What he's actually saying is, I want to know that God himself will be with me in this. Barak recognizes that unless God is with him, he cannot do this. Unless God is with him, he cannot win the battle. Barak understood his own weakness. Barak understood just how dependent he was on God. Now, I would assume that all of us this morning know that this is a good place to be in our lives. It's a good place to be when we understand our own weakness and when we understand God's strength. Whether it's parenting or callings in life or church service or church ministry, whatever it is to say, Lord, I am weak, but you are strong. Lord, I can't do this. I can't do my job. I can't serve at church. I I can't minister to other people in my own strength because I'm too weak. But Lord, you are strong. And since you are with me, Lord, I can do this. Another reason I say this about Barak is because, you know, he's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. He's mentioned as a man of faith. Hebrews 11.32 says this, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith 
conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Barak, I believe, is an example of a man who knew his own weakness. We all need to understand our own weakness. We all need to understand that unless the Lord goes with us, we cannot do what he calls us to do. Deborah says to Barak, okay, I'll go with you. But, but then she says in verse 9, Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Barak, Barak I just want you to know that, that you're not going to get the glory in this battle. And I don't think that's a statement about Barak's lack of faith. I, I think that's just a statement of fact. That's how it's going to be. And, and yet, that doesn't make Barak say, well, you know, if I'm not going to get the glory, I'm not going. If I'm not going to get the credit, if I'm not going to be the star of the show, I don't want to be involved. He doesn't do that. He knows that God is with him. He goes into battle. He goes up against the, the mightiest army of his day with 900 iron chariots. He believes God's promise. He's a man of faith, and he leads his army. Brothers and sisters, I, I say to all of you this morning, God is with us. He's with us. Because of this, we should be people of faith. People who know that, that, that by His Holy Spirit, He is always with us. What, what things is He calling you to trust Him in today? Maybe it's a, a school setting or a work setting or a church setting. Maybe it's something you say, I don't know that I can do this. You're right. In a sense, on your own, you can't do it. But God is with his people. We can go out in faith. This church can move forward in faith. We can know that God is with his people. And now we come to the third part of this passage, which is God delivers his people. Notice what happens. Sisera, the, the great general of the powerful Canaanites, he hears that Barak and 10,000 troops have assembled at Mount Tabor, and he gets his 900 iron chariots and all of his soldiers, and they go to battle against Israel. And on and on paper, this looks like a total mismatch. This looks like Sisera is just going to wipe out Israel. It's like a, there was a college basketball game maybe three weeks ago. Maybe you saw the score of this game. It was um, Grambling versus the College of Biblical Studies. Now that just sounds like a mismatch. But, but the score of that game, Grambling, the Grambling women's basketball team versus the College of Biblical Studies women's basketball team, 159 to 18. They won by 141 points. That, that's kind of like this here. This is what you're expecting. This massive, powerful army with 900 iron chariots going up against Israel. Way too much for Israel. But brothers and sisters, remember something that John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, once said. John Knox said, one man or woman with God is always the majority. One man with God is always the majority. We can believe that as the ministry here in this church is carried out. God is with his church. God will use this church to honor and to glorify his name, to proclaim the gospel, to minister to one another, 
Yeah, this world may seem powerful and, and incredibly dark and wicked, but God is on our side. The Lord Jesus fights for his people and his kingdom will not be defeated. And now look at verse 14. Deborah says to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. The unthinkable happens, right? The unimaginable happens. Sisera's iron chariots are nothing to God. But Sisera gets away. He, he gets off of his chariot and he starts running. But you can't run from God. Sisera's running for his life. He's trying to find a place to hide. He, he comes to the tent of this woman named J.L., we're told here that, that Jael is the wife of Heber, the Kenite. A Kenite is not an Israelite. A Kenite is a Gentile. And not only is this a Gentile home that Sisera has come to, but we're also told that the Canaanites and the, and the Kenites were on friendly terms with each other. They're, they're friends. They're close. Sisera has come to the home of an ally, a friend. This is perfect, the perfect place to hide. Even though Heber's not there, even though he's gone, Sisera has come to the home of a friend. Heber's wife, Jael, comes out to greet him. She says, don't be afraid. You're welcome to stay here. And that's what Sisera does. He goes inside Jael's tent. He lays down. He says, you know, I'm really thirsty. I need something to drink. Can you bring me some water? Interesting, isn't it, that, that Jael doesn't bring him water. She brings him milk. I think they say that milk makes you sleep better. Maybe Jael's got a plan here. She brings him some milk. She puts a blanket on him. And, and Sisera says, hey, while I'm sleeping, I want you to stand at the, at the opening of the tent. And if anyone comes by and says, is anyone else in there with you? Just say, no. Nobody else in here, just me. And, and then because Sisera is so exhausted from the battle, so exhausted for, from running for his life, he falls fast asleep. You, you all know how this is when you're super, super tired. When I, when I come here from California, I get up at 2 in the morning, catch a 6 a.m. flight out of Oakland or Sacramento, get here, it's like 9 o'clock at night, and just, if you've ever traveled before, you know, you're just wasted. And, and before your head hits the pillow almost, you're out. That's Sisera. Fast, fast asleep. Now, all of this looks pretty good for this guy, right? He, he got away from the battle. He escaped the Israelites. He found an ally. He found a place to hide. He's getting some sleep. He got something to drink, but JL has other plans. She grabs a tent peg and a hammer. She walks over to where Sisera is fast asleep. And she drives the tent peg through his skull, through his temple, right into the ground. And the end of verse 21 gives us the most obvious conclusion in the Bible. So he died. You think? just had a tent peg driven through his temple. The Bible is a very earthy book, isn't it? The Bible is not rated G in many respects. There are passages in Scripture, and if you have some time this afternoon, read Judges chapter 3. Read the chapter before this. this that's even more graphic. The Bible is a very earthy book, and this is one of those earthy stories. And, and so we ask the question, what do we do with this? Well, what do you do with an account where a woman takes a tent peg and drives it through a man's skull? A couple of things for you to consider. First of all, 
If you're bothered by the graphic nature of this account, don't forget that the Canaanites were very, very wicked people. They, they went around killing and raping people. Uh, th this is God's justice in this life against the Canaanites. But secondly, and, and more importantly, you know, maybe you're sitting at home and you're reading this for your devotions and you get to the end of this chapter and you go, this, this, what do you do with this? I know it's a picture of judgment, but is there something else here? I, I know that all Scripture is supposed to point to Jesus. How does this point to Jesus? I want to give you two things to think about. First of all, if you have your Bible open, look back at verse 9. Notice what it says in the middle of the verse. Deborah says to Barak, Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. The road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. When, when Jesus came to this earth, he, he didn't come in great glory and majesty. In fact, the Bible tells us that, that Jesus laid aside his glory. The Bible tells us that he who was rich became poor for us. The Bible tells us that he suffered all throughout his earthly ministry. The Bible tells us that people hated him. The Bible tells us his own family thought he was crazy. And, and the road to the cross was a road for Jesus of, of tremendous pain and anguish. But it was a road that led to our salvation. It was a road that led to, to our victory over sin and death and the devil. Secondly, though, I, I don't think the imagery here of J.L. crushing Sisera's skull is insignificant and unimportant. You, you might know that the, the earliest promise in the gospel is in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, Adam plunges the entire human race into sin. And, and God comes to the serpent. And you remember what he says to the serpent? He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promised to send one who would deliver us from our bondage and our oppression, bondage to sin, bondage to the devil. And he said that this deliverance would come through a savior who would bruise or who would crush the head of our greatest enemy. And all throughout the Bible, when you read your Bibles, you have all these little reminders of that promise. All these little imageries of heads. Here it's J.L. who crushes Sisera's head. If you were to go forward into Judges, Judges chapter 9, there's a, there's a woman in Judges 9 who drops a, a, a millstone from a tower and it falls on King Abimelech. And we are told that it crushed his skull. In 2 Samuel chapter 20, there's this scene where they, they cut off the head of a man named Sheba and they throw it over a wall to bring peace in the midst of a war. When David kills Goliath, what does David do with Goliath's head? He cuts it off. Sisera's head is crushed. Abimelech's head is crushed. Sheba's head is cut off. Goliath's head is cut off. All these references to heads... And so all throughout Scripture, we get these little glimpses, we get these little reminders. Don't forget what God promised. Don't forget God's promise to crush the head of your greatest enemy. 
And so at the end of this day, at the end of the day, this story reminds us that God will save his people. There's nothing that a powerful king, nothing that a powerful general, there's nothing that the devil himself, there's nothing that anyone can do to stop that. That in the fullness of time, God sent his son who came and did exactly what God promised he would do and he won the victory for us. And this morning, it doesn't matter if you're young or old. It doesn't matter if you've been in the church your entire life or you've been in the church for a month. This great promise is for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This great promise comes to us this morning and says to us, this is what God has done to win the victory so that we might live forever with him. And now we can go out with confidence, with faith that the Lord is with us and we can declare the gospel, we can serve one another, we can love others and we can know that God will use us to make an impact in this world. Great, great passage. Great reminder of what the Lord Jesus has done and continues to do for us. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your wonderful promise that you are with us. We thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was bruised for us so that we might live forever with you. Lord, help us as your people to live by faith, faith in your promises, faith that you will use us. And Lord, thank you again for all that you have done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.